Now, as we think of the heart of God, as it appears in our title for this message this morning, we're not speaking about so much physiology, nor any organic aspect of somebody's anatomy. We're not dealing here with a cardiovascular system. Just how would you describe the heart of God? It doesn't have so many oracles and ventricles. It doesn't have a tricuspid valve. And so what were these brethren thinking about when they wanted to bring us this message this morning? The Bible really makes very few references to the heart of God. I think there might be five verses in the Bible that refer to the heart of God. I tried to read all those verses as I was meditating for this message. The very beginning there, when God looked upon a perverted world, he had made this world and it turned against him. And there was perversions, pollutions there, and there was impiety there in that antediluvian world. The Bible says that when God saw it, it grieved him at his heart. That's the first reference to the heart of God in the Bible. It grieved him at his heart. Can you imagine God grieving? His heart grieved. And... um, There have been references made here in this meeting so far to Mennonite or Anabaptist type people. And I don't know what word I should use to describe these folk. But we have a a strong aversion against the world. That's that should be. But we will not win the world until we can grieve over the condition of the world. Just to be, just to be red hot against the world will not save anybody. And just to be against it and just to, uh, take strong positions to, uh, be different from it is not enough. It's not the heart of God. It grieved him at his heart. But the Lord was pleased with the ascending aroma of Noah's offering that he made after the flood. He just came out of that boat and he took some of these clean animals that were on that ship and he offered them to God as a burnt offering. And as God saw that, the Bible says that God said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. And God made a decision there. And so we were seeing uh, something here, the heart of God. God feels, God thinks, and he plans. 
and he longs and he speaks and all of his perfection and holiness and all of his majesty and sovereignty yea and all of his mercy and goodness and love come pouring forth from his heart and fills all eternity and fills all places and spaces and fills Camp Penile and fills our hearts today if we would receive it. The heart of God. Now the Bible says, speaks several times, especially in the Minor Prophets, of knowing God. And we, uh, we learn to know God when we know God's heart. Now the Bible tells a young man back there in the Proverbs, says it two times. The Bible tells a young man that he, uh, he is responsible to obey the law of his mother. And the Bible says back there that this law of his mother is like a chain that's around his neck. You can just take this Truman E.B. here. And imagine him with a chain around his neck. And he wouldn't maybe like to carry this chain around his neck. And this chain is so long. That it reaches all the way back to where his mother is right now. I don't know where his mother is. And no matter where he goes in life. No matter how long he lives. No matter how far from his mother he finds himself. He knows the law of his mother, though she has never written a book, though she has never engraved it in stone. He knows what is the law of his mother. He knows what his mother expects of him and what she is even right now desiring from her son. And when the Bible says that, it means that this young man knows the heart of his mother. He knows very well where his mother's heart is on any subject that you could imagine. She has got that through to him. Her heart is in there. And so he knows his mother perfectly well and knows what her law is for him because he knows her heart. And the person that knows God is a person who knows the heart of God. Now, we need to take that a little deeper. This knowing of the heart of God, this knowing of God, Is, is not an academic process. It's not informational knowledge. It's not an encyclopedia. It's not the Britannica. It's not 20, 50 volumes on the deity that we have studied, that we have learned. It is not so much biography. That is not what the Bible means. When God says he looks for someone who will know him. It, it's, it's something we've experienced. We have lived with God. We have experienced his life. That's a person who knows God. And we must hasten to add. That what God is. And that what God is in his heart is what he has chosen for us to be. And that is a miracle that will require the 
teachings that we'll receive later on in this series. How can that happen? That what God is in his heart, that I can be. That we can be. Like God, or as Arthur Andrew Mary said it, like Christ. Means the one has the very heart of God. And I could ask you, is, is this a truly attainable experience that you and I can have the heart of God? Is that possible that we can have the heart of God? Now look around this audience here. And I see you and you see me. And there's a lot of variation here. Backgrounds are so very, very different and places where you live and things you've experienced. So very, very, very different. And uh, some of us do things that others of us would not do. And some of us do things that others don't understand why we do it. But I will tell you that that which we are doing in this camp meeting these this weekend that is perfectly alike each other is is that which we most perfectly learned from the heart of God. The rest of the things we probably learned somewhere else. And maybe that should just arrest our attention a little bit as we think about something. How much of what I'm doing did I learn from God? Or, or where did I learn what I'm doing? Or who taught me that? Where did that come from? Who taught me the words that I'm saying? And who taught me what I'm doing? And why am I doing this? And the heart of God will will surely be a beautiful school to spend a lot of time in. Well, that's uh, just a few words of introduction. Actually, this message right now is an introduction to this entire weekend. And uh, more that we'll hear throughout these days we'll need to draw from what we have here. And uh, since I told you there are not very many references in the Bible to the heart of God, I've already referred to two of them. I want to now refer to a third one. This is the third one that's in the Bible. And in that order also. And I want to uh, use this verse for a text. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 13. Of course, we have King Saul here, and he was a disobedient king. And we have Samuel, who was grieved by this man's irreverent and impious attitude and his disobedience. I would like to look at verse 14 here.
And then uh, I'd like to uh, read a verse in the New Testament that refers to this same verse. And it adds something that this verse doesn't have. And so I need these two verses together to form the, make a complete text for this message. But now in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, But now the, thy kingdom, this is Samuel talking to Saul, Thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. And the Lord hath commanded him to be a captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. And so we have the heart of the Lord here. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. And the Lord hath commanded him to be a captain of his people. I want you to notice how this verse ends. Because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. Now this verse is explained a little bit clearer, maybe in Acts chapter 13. You can turn there. These two verses together then help us understand this text. This is verse 22, Acts 13, 22. And when he had removed him, speaking of Saul from the, from the kingdom, when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. I see a great contrast here between David and Saul. It said back here that Saul has not kept the commandments of the Lord, and we have here this David, which shall fulfill all my will. And when we are directed by the heart of God, when his heart is our heart, when our life is in him, when we receive from Him, then we ha- we're in that place in life where we have that holy possibility of doing His will in this earth. That is, God has then in His possession and under His control, not because of some external chain, and, and, and that's not a chain between Truman and his mother, but it's an illustration of the control that's there. It's an illustration of something that's there. It's, it's an illustration of the influence and the power that's there. And, and God knows that when He has a person after His own heart, or according to His own heart, as Spanish would say it. It's, it's done according to God's heart. That's the way Spanish says it. And when God has that person, then He knows that His will will be done there. And so... In that God is not here. In that God is not here in Christ. The, the, the flesh of Christ is not here. Christ is not here by the Sea of Galilee. He is not here teaching. He is not here healing. He is not here living. He is not here expressing the glory of the Father. He's not here doing that, but we're here. And as He was here and did that will, we will be here and will do His will. And as Christ was here and God could depend upon Him and knew that He would do His will in what He did as He was in the earth, we have this, we have this assembly of 175, 200 people here in this, in this campground. And we have these dedicated worshipers of God. And we have these singers of these hymns. And we sing these psalms and spiritual songs one to another. And we submit one to another. And we give joy and joyful thanksgiving to God from our hearts. And we, and God has all these people gathered here. And He sends them out then across 
All these states for which you have come and the congregations that you represent and God has these people where his will will be done in earth as it is done in heaven. Because his heart, his heart finds expression in lips and hands and feet and decisions and directions and dedications and consecrations to God and God's heart is here. It's such a beautiful thing to think about. A mortal man Fulfilling all the will of God in his life. Think of that. This is a miracle that a mortal man can do that. You stood before the mirror this morning. You put your clothing on. Looked in there. You looked at yourself. You combed your hair. And you were you were there in that very moment uh, with with the given the opportunity to be doing the will of God as you were doing it. You go to the clothing store and make your selections. You can be doing the will of God as you're doing it. You pass through the vehicles in a used car lot. Or maybe people in Pennsylvania don't buy used cars. I, I suppose I'm a little bit out of touch. And you have the, in your power the opportunity to do doing God's will as you make that selection for a vehicle. And that's not all, but when you turn that key, that ignition, start that engine, and pull that car out in the highway, or pull it out of the church parking lot, you can do the will of God as you're doing that. And if it's God's will for you not to ever drive a car, you can do that too. And bring glory to His name. And wherever that happened to be, you can also bring glory to God by, by, by taking a long pole in your hands and putting it down to the down the bottom of the water onto the onto the riverbed and push along a dugout canoe to go across the other side to a village to preach. You can do that too and do that for the will of God. You don't have to have a an eight liter power stroke to do God's will. And uh, to think that in mortal flesh we can do the will of God. And uh, if we're not conscious of that, we won't do it, of course. For you to find the heart of God today, where would you go to look for it? Where, where is the will of God being done in the spirit of grace, by which he does all that he does, in the beauty of holiness that so much characterizes his heart, where would you go to find that? And just asking that question should certainly put a longing into our hearts. It puts a longing into my heart. Where do you go to find that? And for such persons and in such places, God is looking. I want to read just several references that indicate that. I'm going to Deuteronomy chapter 5, first of all. For such persons, God looks. Such places, God desires to be. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 29. This is God speaking. Oh, that there were such an heart in them that they would fear me. And keep all my commandments always. 
that it might be well with them and with their children forever. And I think it's in the 10th chapter of this same Deuteronomy where God tells us that all His commandments to us are for our good. And, and Truman might discover that someday, and I'm using him for example because he's sitting up front here and his dear father called me on the phone just right before I left home and told me I might see his son here at this meeting. And that law, that chain, that mother's law, it's for Truman's good. And he will be blessed if he obeys it, and he will be a joy to many people if he follows that heart of his mother. He'll be a disappointed young man if he ever tries to break himself free from that chain. And all of God's commands to us are not for our control. It's not to have dominion over us. It's not to suppress us. It's not to have authority over us. It's not to put us under his chancleta, like we'd say in Spanish. It's for our good. And he just wishes there was a heart in these people that would fear him. Keep all my commandments always. See, God looks for that. And still looks for that today. Isaiah 66, this verse has all been quoted here in this meeting. Or part of it was quoted. Isaiah 66, and I want the second verse, but I'll read the first one with it. Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath my hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit or of a contrite heart, and trembleth at my word. I'm looking for that person. I'm looking for the person that, that when he's in the Bible, he's sitting in the church service and hearing no sermon. He's in the quiet time with the word of God open before him. And he comes across a passage and he reads something there. And he knows that what he's reading is not his experience. He knows that what he's reading is not, is not true of his own life. He knows that what he reads or what she's reading She's not experiencing. And she trembles at that. And she, uh, or he, takes that Bible open and lays it on the seat of the chair and kneels in front of that chair with that open Bible with a verse there. And gets before God. And tells the Lord that I will stay here until I have the assurance that what you say to me is in here. And deal with me until it's part of me. And I don't want to just trip over this. And uh, tear out into life. And forget what I see here. But this must be part of my experience. And I wait before you until it is. The lady was 84 years old. She was sitting on a wheelchair outside the Baltimore, Washington airport. The man who was coming to pick her up had got caught in a traffic jam and couldn't come to get her. 
and left her, and so she was sitting there waiting for this man to come. I was standing beside her. I was waiting for someone who was caught in a traffic jam to come and pick me up. So I had a little over an hour to be there. She said, after a while, we, we talked several little tidbits of conversation. And after she had her cane, she, she was leaning on her cane, and her cane was uh, down between her, the two parts, the two steps of her wheelchair. And she was leaning on her cane, and she was sitting on a wheelchair. And she looked at me, and she said, Sir, you have a lot of patience? I said, ma'am, that's a hard question to answer. So if you would have asked me if I was humble, I certainly wouldn't be very quick to say yes. If you ask me if I have patience, I suppose not nearly as much as I should have. But I had to remember something that you don't know anything about. I had to remember, as she asked that question, The 23 years prior to that question, a bishop stood in front of the church, explained the reason for silencing me from the ministry, and said, Brother Dale does not have patience like he ought to have. I've seen him with patience, but he doesn't have the patience that he should have. And he quoted a verse from the Bible that deals with the need for the servant of the Lord to have patience. Many years later, far, far from where that happened, I was in a chicken house gathering some eggs. And you know, sometimes those hens, they don't put the eggs in the nest where they should. They put them down on the floor in a corner. And this was down on the floor, under, in a corner under, under the nest where they should have been, down under there in the litter they put their eggs. And I was in there getting them up, putting them in a basket. And a hen came flying and sat right on my head. She just dug her claws right in there. And I was reaching there, I was reaching under to get these eggs out. And this hen sat on top there. And I gave that hen an early dismissal. And immediately, what had happened some years prior, what that brother said in the pulpit, called my attention. And I left the chicken house, left the eggs in the basket. And when he got my Bible, and I opened up to Second Timothy chapter 2, the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle, patient. I told the Lord I stay here, until this is done. You see, this is the heart of God for us. And we, we find the heart of God here. And when these teachings are here, these truths are here, then God looks for someone who says, do you want to be like me or don't you? And what are you willing to pay? What are you willing to, what are you willing to spend? What are you willing to invest so that you would be like me? To this man will I look 
even to the most poor and of a contrite spirit or heart, and trembleth at my word. And then there's another verse I wanted to read here in John chapter 4. This this verse you know very well. This is verses 23 and 24. This is Jesus speaking. He says, But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. The Father seeketh. He looks for. God is His Spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. God looks for that. And God wants that. So we have several points this morning we should cover. And I don't know what time it is or how much time we have. I don't see a clock. So I don't know. And so uh, somebody might want to remind me there where we, how we're going along. God from the foundation of the world desires a people with His own heart. And we've already clearly seen that. That was His purpose in creation. It tells us in Genesis one twenty six, and I'll try to run through this somewhat rapidly. But in, in Genesis one twenty six, we have there the uh, the deity speaking, and it's a plural it's a plural expression. Let us make man in our image. And God had that in mind from the very beginning. This this heart, this nature, this spirit, this 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 perfection, this love. This holiness that characterizes the eternal God that, that we make man that be like that. That, that we'd mix someone that, this, a living creature that would be like that. Not, not, not a camel. Not a butterfly. A, a, a person that we can relate to and can understand us and we can understand them and, and our hearts can be together and we can have fellowship there. And God made a man like that and, and made a, a lady to go with it. And in that same garden, he, there two, two trees were there. And those two, two trees represent two ways of life. The way of life and the way of death. And someone ate of the wrong one. When they could have eaten of this one, they ate of that one. And now there's guilt there. And now conscience is soiled. And I don't know if man had a conscience before that terrible choice to sin. I don't know if there was a need for conscience part of that. I suppose that that conscience um, was a a result of, of of eating of that knowledge of good and evil. And uh, the word the word conscience has has the word knowledge in it. And uh conocer in Spanish to know. And and, and conscience is, is a knowing. And that conscience was smitten. That conscience knew the wrong thing. That conscience could not feel good in God's presence. Conscience was soiled, and now there's separation from God, and there's no access to Him, and there's a cool of the day, and the, and Hebrews says ruach of the day, the air of the day. Spanish says the the breath of God, the the, the breath moment, the the fresh presence of God moment, and Adam was not around. That was the birth of depravity. 
the birth of a deceitful and a desperately wicked heart that that uh, Jeremiah refers to in 17, chapter 17. And uh, I, I cringe sometimes when I hear preachers use that verse to refer to the hearts of the Christians. And I ask, what has happened? Do you mean as a child of God, I must have a heart that's wicked above all things, uh, uh, deceitful above all things and desperately wicked? Is that as far as I can get in my Christian experience? Do, do I go through life with this heart that is deceitful? And I know that naturally that's the way it would be, but, but there is a new heart. There is a new nature. There's the heart of God. The heart of God is not deceitful above all things. It is not desperately wicked. And uh, if you don't have any longing for anything else this morning, long for that heart. Long for God to deal with this deception and to deal with this wickedness and deal with this inclination towards evil in your heart. And, And long for God to do that. Long for God to do something about that. Long for God to give you something new. Long for God to transform that heart. Long for God to take that heart out of there and put another heart of flesh in here. Long for God to give us His heart. And, and of course, that's not something that's done by a transplant. It'd be easy if we could go to Mayo Clinic and have them somehow put us to sleep and open us up and take this thing out of there and put something else into there. It'd be, it would be a, it would be a, 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 it'd be an easy way out. But it's not that. It's by faith. It's by faith that so you can sit here as this brother stands here so reverently this morning and leading us in those beautiful hymns and, and those expressions of worship and those expressions of faith in God and those expressions of a desire for our nearness to Him and His nearness to us and that dwelling place throughout the ages. And so we're singing that and we're, we feel lofted into a holy place. We don't even feel like we're feet on the earth when we sing that hymn. But we leave here. And life becomes very normal. And, 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 and we lose that touch of faith. You see, there's this heart. We, we keep that heart in here by faith. That heart is here by faith. And, and I know it's here or I know, I'm not conscious that it's here. And, and, and by faith it's here. And it's instantaneously here when I ever think about it that I have the heart of God. And I must, I must, in one sense, the word continually receive that like I continually receive the air I'm breathing. That's how we live the Christian life. That's how this heart comes to us. And, and, uh, and as we continually do that, something, something miraculous happens to the, that which otherwise would have been deceitful and desperately wicked. Something miraculous happens to that. As in this very moment, I'm in God's presence and He is here and He's in control and I'm His and He is mine. And his heart is beating in my breast. And do you long for that? Do you say, this is, this is where we are, see? This is where we are. This is why we're here. We need that. You and I do. You see, the knowledge of the holy... It's far more than a lawyer's license where you went to school so long and learned all the statutes and you learned all the laws of the land. 
It's, it's, it's not something that you simply spend so much time learning until you got the whole thing put together. And, and God, in, out of the concern from, of His heart for His people, said these very sobering words in Isaiah 29. And, and this is a verse you ought to have marked in your Bible. It's a verse that ought to be written on your heart. It's a verse that we as God's people need to understand. God says it here so very well. 29.13 Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth, and their lips with their lips do they honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. It was something they had learned. It's as if they sat in school. as if they went to... I, I sat with a man on the airplane coming up here, and he said, I'm, I'm in law school in the Jackson, Mississippi the University of Mississippi in Jackson, the capital, and I'm in law school there. And, and I said, which kind of a lawyer do you plan to be? I want to be a prosecuting attorney. And uh, I looked at him. And he's going to learn all these laws. going to learn this stuff. And you don't learn God's law that way. You, you can't learn it by just memorizing so much Talmud or so much Mishnah. You can't learn it that way. This, this law comes another way. And so God had this desire in creation, and, and you saw what man did with it. And so God called Abraham. And that's in chapter 12 of Genesis. And we have this obedient man. We have this altar-building man. We have this man who believed God. We have this man who, who God said, come out and look at these stars. And he said, I'm going to make your, your descendants like these stars up here. Count them. And he said, no, I just have this Damascus that's in my house. And God said, no, I'm going to do it through one of your own heirs. And it's going to, re- it's going to result in this that you see. He's called the father of the faithful. But then, if you would, in chapter 17, and i just trying to hasten along here. I was told to, get, told to get all the way to Revelation that we're still in 17 of Genesis. But this is the first verse. And it says, When Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared unto Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I think what that means is this. Stay in my presence, Abraham. Be conscious of my presence. And you're not going to sin in the presence of God. You're not going to be carnal in the presence of God. You're not going to be flashy in the presence of God. You're not going to be putting on the latest styles of this land in the presence of God. You're not going to be trying to attract attention in the presence of God. You're not going to be acting pridefully in the presence of God. You're not going to be selfish in the presence of God. You will give others the first chance in the presence of God. You will walk before Him with His own heart when you're sensing His nearness and His presence to you and his presence within you. Abraham, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me. And all men of God have done that. Elijah said it. And Elisha said it after him. Before whom I stand. And Spanish says it better. In cuyo presencia estoy. I'm always in his presence. I'm always in his presence. And that's always true. But we don't always think about it. And, and you know, we would, we'd be much near the heart of God in our expressions and our daily attitudes and in our words that we say and what we're doing. We, we'd be much like the heart of God, much more like it if we were realizing that this very moment we're in God's presence. But we don't think about that. Something else took our attention. Something else has captured our thinking. And we're not conscious of it that right now I am the only instrument 
that God has here that he can use in this very minute. And I must be in his presence and feel his heart to have his spirit working in my life right now. There's a, there's a light necessary, a, a, a light needed in this lantern right now. There's a testimony for Jesus right now. And, and, and I am God's choice at this place. I am God's choice at this unique place right now. And, uh, but I'm not conscious of it. And I'm thinking, just like the rest of the people around me are thinking, I'm disturbed by the thing that disturbs the rest. I'm upset by what's upsetting the rest. You're in line, waiting to board the airplane. And the, the announcement is that the plane is going to be an hour late. And if you wait almost that hour, you waited 45 minutes of that hour to get another announcement that the flight has been canceled. And just listen to what happens across that entire waiting area. And God has you there. And you're in God's presence. And you're the the only person in the waiting room. The only person at the Saturday board that has the Spirit of God in your heart. And what happens if you fail God then? Remain in my presence. And there be perfected. And so Abraham was called the friend of God. And so began with this man the holy possibility of living by faith. I believe in God of having communion with him. And so beautiful was that communion. Let's see what God did about that in chapter 18 of Matthew. Excuse me, of Genesis. In verse 19. And God said about him, I know him. That he will command his children in his household after him. And they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. The Lord may may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. God so knew Abraham. It was a beautiful thing. And then that most severe test came in chapter 22. And up there at Mount Moriah, a young man was laid upon an altar. And God's benediction fell upon that man, Abraham. And now, now it's your turn and mine. It's the first sermon I ever preached in my life. I think it was back in the month of January of 1969. I preached from uh, the the sacrifice of Isaac. At that time, young in my life, I was 21 years old, I thought that that's what the chapter was about. And then, some years later, I preached from that same chapter, the first message I ever preached in Spanish in June of uh, 89, 20 years later. And uh, and then I, that title was the, the the sacrifice of Abraham instead of the sacrifice of Isaac. The sacrifice of Abraham, and then ten days later, we buried our son. And of course, I didn't know it then, but we were living this. By faith, we lived this. And you and I can right now, and whoever we are, be the expression that God wants in this earth of his heart.
no matter where we are, no matter what we face. Now, do you want that in your life? Well, we have a, a beautiful Hebrew word here, the Shekinah. And you have come to understand that means the, the presence of God and the glorious presence of God. The word Shekinah in Hebrew really means residence. Now, just just think about that a little bit. It means the residence. It's where God dwells. And you see what we're doing here with this. See what see this journey we're on here. The dwelling place of God, as revealed in visible form. Now, here we are. See one, two, three, four, five, six young men on this bench. Five young ladies over here. And the Shekinah, the presence of God revealed in bodily form, in visible form. A cloud, perhaps, some flames of fire, some smoke of incense. Visible, the visible glory of God. And Moses saw it at the bush. And the children of Israel experienced that as they came out of Egypt, the pillar of cloud. But it did not change their hearts. It did not make them like him. And though Sinai thundered, and there was lightning, and there was earthquakes, and and some of us know what earthquakes are like. And uh, it scared the people, it terrified the people. And a law came written on stone. And Moses was there forty days, and he came down with his face shining like an angel. It did not change them. And though they had learned many things, he said, yes, 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 teach us, tell us all about it, yes, 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 they sat in school there but it did not change their hearts. To a certain extent, they were able to do, but they had no power to be. Then behold this tabernacle in the wilderness, and let's see the glory of the Lord coming and filling this place, and no one could enter into that tabernacle. And God said, I'm going to build that. He said in chapter 25 of Exodus, that I might dwell among them. And so they built this beautiful place. With offerings. And the more offerings were given than necessary. And there was a pattern that was showed in the mount. Do it that way. According to that pattern. It showed in the mount. Now let me explain something to you. We can get skilled craftsmen. Masons. Artificers. And they, they can reproduce the form. Now, the, the curtain should be made like this. And this basin should be made like that. And uh, you make these instruments like this. And build these tables this way. And, and they can build all that and reproduce it just perfectly. If they have enough skill. They can take these brute prints. They can take this pattern that was shown in the mountain. They can make it. And they can make the form. But they can't put any life in it. Later there was a temple, and the temple was even of superior cost, and it was even of more glory. Now the priest cannot enter into it, because the Shekinah is there, and the multitude falls down on their faces outside, but something is missing. Something is not right. Something is not working. 
And God finds a little shepherd boy, the eighth son of a farmer. And God finds something there that he longs to use. He finds someone with his own heart. I'm going to go here now again to First Samuel, this time to chapter 16. Would you please turn there? When Samuel was sent to Jesse's house to anoint one of these sons, and he didn't know which one. And he was impressed with what he saw when he saw these big boys coming, the height of the stature, the countenance, the outward appearance. But the Lord was not looking there. Verses 12 and 13. And he sent and brought him in. This is the, the youngest of the eight. Now he was ruddy and with all of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of, the, of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. I want to say a few things about this verse. Something happened to David here. His heart was towards God. He had a desire for God. He, he longed for God. He worshipped God. He sang to God. He probably had a limited knowledge of God, but what he knew moved him. And God did something here to this young man on the day of this anointing. And David knew when it happened, and so did others. The Bible says, from that day forward... And the Lord was with him. And Saul knew it. And the men of Israel knew it. And the Philistine enemies of God knew it. They, they, they knew David well enough to know that God was with him. It was a powerful testimony out of his life. Because the Spirit of the Lord anointed David. The Spirit of the Lord was there. And we have this kingdom building David. He received this kingdom from Saul. And in the 40 years that he was king, the kingdom of Israel grew 10 times larger than what it was when he received it as a kingdom. This man was a kingdom builder. He had a vision for worship. Look at his psalms. We've read and sung some of them this morning. He believed in consecration, the voluntary kind. And tried to teach that to his people. But David was a warrior. And he was a prayer warrior. But look what it cost him to become a pilgrim of flame. Look what it cost him. He had this anointing and now chased around. Like so much carnage there in, in the wilderness. Chased around by 3,000 men. But yet see his respect for authority. See his love for the perfect law of God. See his jealousy for God's glory. The Spirit of God was upon him, and God found something there that he was looking for. But all this was lost eventually. Though temporarily revived under Hezekiah, later under Josiah, this king that was like no other king. Uh, the Bible says things about King Josiah that it says about no other person. I can't read all those references to you. His reverence for the Word of God, the humility and the brokenness with which he did all that he did, his zeal for the Lord and God's cause. He cleansed the temple, cleansed the evil of the land. This was the heart of God. The glory departed from that temple. Ezekiel tells us that in 11.23. I'd just like to read a verse or two in Ezekiel. Would you allow me to do that? Go to chapter 43 of Ezekiel. 
And if that glory departed and God began His work among His people and this prophecy continued to come to the prophet there while he was in captivity in Babylon, that's where this prophecy came. He was prophesying at the same time that Jeremiah was back in the land of Israel. Ezekiel was over there in Babylon. He saw the glory of the Lord come back to the house. Saw prophetically, verse 4, And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate, whose prospect is toward the east. So the Spirit took me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. And I heard Him speaking unto me out of, this, out of the house. And the man stood by me, but I want to look at verse 12 right now. This is the law of the house. Upon the top of the mountain and whole limit thereof, round about shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the house. You're in the state of Pennsylvania right now. You can go to Harrisburg. That's the capital. You go to the capital building. There are two chambers, one on the right side, one on the left. In both those chambers is a large mural, a large painting. And uh, this verse is printed under one of those paintings. And I never noticed that verse before I was in there, and I went home and looked at my Bible. It was there, and I preached from this text several times in my life. It's the law of God's house, that everything around here be holy. And it's the law of God's house, that not only does this house be holy, but but you see, it says the whole limit thereof around about. It means that from this house goes a holy influence, because your life is lived within the presence of God. Behold, this is the law of the house. I just want you to think about that. It's the heart of God. And then I want you to go to Malachi. Chapter 3. And we have three appearings here. Three appearings in this chapter. In these first four verses, rather. You will recognize one of them real quickly. The other one you might recognize. The third one maybe you won't. So let's see if we can find them. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of the Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. We have a problem in Spanish when we preach and teach the people to get them to understand the word righteousness. It's a hard word to explain in Spanish because the word righteousness in Spanish is the exact same as your word justice. And they they can easily think it means eye for eye and tooth for tooth, a scales, a balance scales, a courtroom. Uh, this is the consequence for this. Uh, so much good is done, so much bad is done, a balance. I have a right to do it because you did it to me. Uh, it's, it's, it's right because this evens out the record. That kind of, that kind of thoughts go through a Latin speaker when they hear the word justicia, which is Spanish for righteousness. But righteousness is a very, very beautiful word, a very deep word. A word that comes very, very close to God's heart. And that's the offering he's looking for. And that's what he wants to come out of this conference. And the brother stood up here in the front row yesterday morning, yesterday, last evening, and he said, we have all been saying what we're looking forward to is seeing God do in this weeks, but he, he, he thinks that 
God is waiting to see what we're going to do. And this is what God is waiting for us to do. He's waiting to see the righteousness that this weekend brings forth out of our lives. That offering of righteousness. That, that, that right living, that holy living before the Lord. That, that heart that's right like God's heart is right. And doing what God's right heart would do. That's righteousness. And we can't do that until this purifier comes. And so we have John the Baptist here. And we have our Lord Jesus coming. And we have that Holy Spirit of God that comes. The refining fire and the purifying power of the Holy Spirit. And what is the heart of God? That judgment would run down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. That's the heart of God. And that's why this Spirit comes. And that's why it can't be done until He comes. And that's His heart for us. And so in the fullness of time, Emmanuel. In the fullness of time, God in the flesh. God with us. In the fullness of time, a virgin conceives. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Almighty God, the Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the heart of God. And what happened to the River Jordan? And he told John the Baptist, he said, Thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. And that heavenly dove descended upon the Lamb of God. And and righteousness comes no other way until the Holy Spirit comes and fills this heart and takes possession of this life and of these faculties. Why righteousness is not done because I learned to do it. It's not done because I'm imitating somebody. It's not done because I have a code of ethics that I've followed. It's not done because I've learned how to Maintain some kind of ecclesiastical code. It comes because Christ's Spirit is in my heart. That's the only way righteousness comes. The only only righteous thing I ever did is it was done in response to His motions in my heart and the life that He gave me. And and righteousness is done no other way. And, And nothing else I do is righteous. It's just flesh trying to please itself and flesh trying to impress the rest and flesh trying to fit in with wherever I'm at. It's just a flesh at work. It's not righteousness of God. And so we have a heaven-descending dove and anointed him. He was anointed there. And the glory of the Lord is revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And so we have the heart of God in mortal flesh. And we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we can be that way. There can be grace. We have that coming up this, this evening. We have it coming up tomorrow morning. This This ministry of grace. Because it's in here. And it's not in here. And it won't come out that way. It'll come out some other way. It'll be division. It'll be strife. It'll be contention among God's people. It'll be pridefulness. It'll be, it'll be church pride. It'll be all kinds of things. But it will not be the ministry of grace. And so we have two statements that I want to give to you from Jesus' life. Two statements that have startled me during the last six months and two statements that have stopped me in my tracks I don't know how many times in the last six months. Two statements that I cannot get past these two statements. The first was that Jesus said that he always he does always speak what his Father gives me, that, that's what I speak. What the Father gives me to speak, that's what I speak. And I'm going to ask you something. How many times did I open my mouth how many times we open our mouths? Dear people, please forgive us. How, God, how many times we open our mouths and we speak and God did not give us the words that we're speaking? 
And the words that would grieve the Spirit of God if he would be listening. Its words are not giving grace to anybody. They're not ministering to the life of anybody. The words we're speaking, such prideful words, such attention-getting words. Oh, God forgive us. We, we, we say all kinds of things that never should come up through the lips of a Christian. Some jokey little funny thing. We well, say all kinds of stuff. And Jesus had this anointing. Jesus had the heart of his Father. When Jesus spoke, the words of God came out. And the Bible tells us we speak the oracles of God. And can you raise your hand? Don't do it. Can you raise your hand and say, that's all I speak. I just speak the oracles of God. That's all I speak. And, and we're stunned when we hear that. And we, we're smitten when we hear that. Then Jesus said something else. If that's not enough to startle you, what else did Jesus say? He said, I do always those things that please the Father. And everything else, everything else is off the list. There's, there's nothing else on the to-do list. There's nothing else on my agenda. There's nothing else in the date book except one thing. What pleases the Father. And those things startle us. But that's what happens when we have the heart of God. That's that. Listen, if we just open our, lift up our eyes this morning and, and see that vision, see that possibility, see that example, see that noble model, and, and believe that not only was, was it He that one day lived that way on this earth for 33 years and showed us that, but He says, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come. I will come so that you can be like this. I will do this in here. What you've seen, what you've experienced for these years. You see, uh, the brother Lloyd told us about those young men that came to his house and wanted, wanted to give their hearts to God. And, and what I want to do, what I do that, when I make that decision, what I really want him to do is I'm saying, I, I'm seeing the great difference between what I am and what he is. And, and, and the steps that I take towards that, that's what I'm doing. I, my goal is like him. That's what most people become Christians. And my, many times they're moved to be that way because they see it in us. You see, that is the greatest testimony we have. That's the greatest evangelism that there is. That's the greatest light that can go forth. That's a city that cannot be hit. When our neighbors can see this life that was so nobly lived here, now lived here. And how we should fall on our faces. And as the brothers said this morning, how should we, how we should corporately repent. Dear Lord and Father of mankind, forgive our foolish ways. Jesus said the world cannot receive it. And his favorite term for the Holy Spirit was spirit of truth. And, and that spirit of truth is far, far more than, than that agency or capacity or means by which we know the truth. Because you knew that before he came. You knew it before he came how many ordinances there were. You knew before he came how to make a veil and put it on your head. You knew before he came you washed feet. At the communion service. But the Spirit of Truth came to do far more than that. He came to make you true. The Spirit of God in this heart to make this mortal body, this mortal being, true. So what you hear when when it's preaching time, when it's pulpit time, is what you see the rest of the time. Because it's true. And that doesn't happen apart from the Spirit of God in your life.
And so they wait, tarry, till you receive the promise of the Father, the promise that was first given to Abraham. And that Abrahamic promise was, was probably the, the best description of that. Yes, we knew Christ was coming, but all in him shall all nations of the earth be blessed. This, this holy promise was carried out when the Holy Spirit came. It's the promise of the Father. Ye shall be due from power on high. And now the day of Pentecost is full to come. The promised Spirit came. And just why were they called Christians, those early believers? And those that received this, that chosen few, why were they called Christians? And I heard some of you say this, these days were together because they were little Christ. The word Christ means the anointed. And the Christians are the anointed ones. And uh, you, you, you're not a little Christ, or you're not an example of Christ, or you're not a present-day model of Christ, unless you and I are, as he was, also anointed ones. That's what the word Christian means. This is that which was spoken, Peter said in that sermon, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. So we have a mystery here that transcends the individual Victories of a David who never lost a battle. Elijah, who was the greatest of all prophets. We have something here that goes way, way beyond. A John the Baptist, a voice in the wilderness. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. And he prayed that they might be one as we are in 17 John. We have the church of Jesus Christ. We're experiencing something very interesting. I'm looking forward to it very, very much. We have down there in near Anta, Peru, a family, a lonely family of eight children living there by themselves. They've been there for over two and a half years alone. And we would like to have another family to be with them. We'd like to, like to just give a broader expression to the tes- Christian testimony there. And we interviewed a family last weekend. And, uh, they came to Costa Rica. To be, expressed their interest in going to Peru and, and they were accepted to, to go and they're planning to go beginning of the year. And uh, I'm so much looking forward to this because we, we, we need that corporate expression. We, we, we need those catch with people down there to see how these brothers work together and how they relate to each other and how their worship is when they're together and how they relate to each other and their love for each other, their concern for each other, the united testimony. It's one thing for a lone prophet to be out there slashing swords and beating sledgehammers. It's another thing to see that expression in the body of Christ. And that's where God comes and dwells. And that, that's, that's the, uh, that's the temple that God has here in the earth. And, and that corporate expression is so beautiful. And, and I guess if there's anything that grieves my heart, this grieves God's heart. It grieves my heart. If there's anything that grieves my heart, it's, is to see God's people so contentious with each other. And the divisions and the problems that have caused and the testimony that has been lost and the lives that have been disappointed that were looking in at us, they were looking across and looking at us to see how this would work out and, and wondering if it's true and wondering if they can believe in it and wonder if they should take a step towards it. And all of a sudden they see us disintegrating. And how then will they know? And is this, is this what the heart of God does? In your congregation, dear people, is this what the heart of God is doing? And somehow we must realize that this is not the heart of God at work. It's something else far, far different. And let us humble ourselves and again let us repent. And then, you, you see, I just make this statement. That's what evangelism is. It's, it's, 
It's when men see the heart of God in a corporate expression of God's humble people living two or three gathered together in his name. And there he is in the midst of them. This is the church of Christ. We have a very large expression of that here today. But the brother asked me to read some verses in Revelation 21. These, this one verse was already read. I'm going to read them again. Much here we could read in this chapter. We have eternal thrones here. We have four beasts and we have 24 elders. We have angels, innumerable company. We have incense rising around the throne. We have a hallelujah chorus. We have light, white linen, which is the righteousness of the saints. We have Jesus saying seven times, I know thy works. And, 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 and for God to know my works is one thing. I know God knows my works, but there's some desire I had this morning that God would know more than my works, that he would know me. That, that someday he would say, I know you, son, come home. I, he would never say, I know you not. He would say, I know you. That the, the greatest thing of all life is to be known of God. And, and who does God know? God knows the person who has his heart. Because God looks and sees his image there. He sees and sees his own heart there in that person. And God says, I know who that is. You're mine. This holy work was done in your life. Your mind, son, be with me. Tremendous, tremendous thought. That's what the white robes are all about. The righteousness of the saints. I know thy works, but to be known of God. The Lord knoweth them that are his. Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. I'd like to read a lot of this, but I can't do it. But verse 1 of 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And that, that adorning was explained in the 19th chapter. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and he shall be, they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them, and be their God, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. You shall there more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And so they have the testimony of Jesus. It tells us two times in this, in this apocalyptic passage book of revelation those who do not live by the law of a carnal commandment but they live by the power of an endless life they have the testament of jesus now i must close with a question do we have here this morning the heart of god the spirit of the living god has he sent the spirit of his son into our hearts whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Is it true in our hearts? Now, the brother referred to Pentecost in his opening comments. And I want you to know that each one of us must experience Pentecost. You say, Brother Dale, Pentecost happened years ago. Peter said, this is that which was spoken. Peter said, it has already happened. It's done. Uh, Pentecost was a time and place. It was a transitional time. It was the birth of the church. Uh, it happened then. Lord, dear heart, I heard you. I understand what you mean. But you must see it a little deeper. 
Calvary is also a historic place. There were three crosses erected there. Calvary will never happen again. Calvary took place back there. Calvary made a turning point. And all history points forward to that. And now we today can look back to see what happened there. Calvary will never happen again. But that doesn't help you. Unless Calvary happens to you. And Pentecost happened. And a chosen little group of people of 120 received a special gift that day. And what was made available then is now available for all mankind since that all flesh shall see it together. But it must happen to me. It must come here. It must be done here. You see, I must die upon my own cross. And that dying is, is, is very constant. It's very daily. It's very continual. And so at Pentecost, he must come and anoint me. And if I receive that anointing, and do I have the heart of God? You see, is the law of God written in my heart? Is that spirit of truth written here? And we're not following a jack with a lantern, as Jonathan Edwards said it. But we have a north star. It never moves. It's permanent. It's clear. It's a, it's a sure word of prophecy until the day dawns and the day star rises in our hearts. And we know whom we believe and it's written. And when this Holy Spirit of God comes, He's the Spirit of this. He makes this right here true in my life. And God comes and dwells and He says, This is the person that I will use. This is the one that I choose. He is the one that is like my own heart. And it's written here. It's not written in booklets and magazines and pamphlets that we have, that we carry around inside the cover of our Bibles that have our church's name on the outside of it. It's written here. Deeper than all of that. And I'm against, I'm I'm 100% in favor of brotherhood agreements. And a brotherhood covenant. I'm a strong believer in that. It's a precious thing to, to us in our churches in Costa Rica. But we have the heart of God, have the life of Christ. What is the heart of Christ? Come and learn of me. That I am meek and lowly of heart. You shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If that's what you're looking for, then come and learn. Not by studying, but by experiencing. And I will stay here until the humility and meekness of God, the patience of our Lord, the beauty of His holiness is somehow found to become the law of this house. This is the heart of God. May God bless you.